sermon is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. You may follow the reading on your own Bible on the bullet, or on the bulletin or in the Pew Bible on page 827. The word of our Lord. And again Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out, into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place... There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that uh, you would be at work in each of our lives now. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. And and now I pray that you would uh, graciously wield that authority here on earth uh, to prevent our hearts from uh, keeping you at arm's length as you present yourself to us uh, in this passage. Lord, would you be gracious to let us, enable us uh, to feel the the gravity of uh, both the upside and the downside of the kingdom of heaven and to not think that this is something uh, we can be detached from, to not think that this isn't a description of reality. And, and it would be your mercy to accomplish those things in our lives. And so we, we are confident when we pray for that now. It, I ask you to do more than, than I could ever imagine or even ask. That you would do this for the sake of those already your people and uh, for those not yet your own. And I ask that today, savingly and omnipotently, you would call uh, the dead into life through your gospel. I pray in your name. Amen. You know, I know it's Mother's Day, and I couldn't figure out how to cleverly uh, weave a a Mother's Day application into the sermon, so I'm just going to say it at the beginning. Moms, I don't care whether you're a new mom, not yet a mom, maybe a future mom, or a mom in the rearview mirror. Do you know this? Your kids don't need your perfection. Your kids, it's not why God gave you to your kids so you could be perfect for them. They've got Jesus for that. And your kids are never going to be perfect no matter how faithful you are. So God didn't give them to you so they could learn how to be perfect. He gave Jesus to them because He's perfect What they need to learn, you can teach them, which is how to be a sinner who is saved by grace, trusting in the work of the perfect one, Jesus Christ. You can teach them that. So don't 
think about the calling of motherhood in a way that, that dethrones Jesus, either as you find yourself in the midst of it and find yourself totally inadequate to it. Of course you're inadequate to it. Or as you look back, uh, perhaps you're an older mom, and you look back with regret over mistakes you've made. Well, listen, it is never too late to repent. It is never too late to ask for forgiveness. It is never too late to acknowledge the glorious, all-sufficient lordship of Jesus Christ. So moms, repent if this is a temptation for you. Repent of thinking that you have to be perfect in order to be a mom who is pleasing to the Lord, because you don't. If you were perfect, then you wouldn't need the gospel and your kids would be deprived through your perfect motherhood of the very thing that they need, which is the gospel. Okay, that has nothing to do with the rest of the sermon. I want to think with you about four uh, applications or implications of this parable uh, this morning um, for our reflection and our worship this morning. And uh, let me tell you what they are. This may be the shortest introduction to a sermon I've ever had. And then we'll just dive right in. The first... Uh, lesson that I want to think about with you this morning is from this parable is that the universe isn't a tragedy. The second lesson uh, that we gain from this parable is that the universe isn't about us. The third lesson is that we are not entitled to the gospel, but we are obligated by the gospel. And the fourth is that God's sovereignty and our responsibility are not a zero-sum game. And I'll explain what that means when we get there. So the first point, first lesson from the parable is that the universe isn't a tragedy. You know what Jesus is trying to do in this parable, friends, is he's trying to make the universe as it actually is legible to us. He's trying to make the universe intelligible to us. Because remember what we we saw last week, uh, thinking about Jesus' parables, is that is that he's narrating in these parables and all of his teaching, Jesus at one level or another is is narrating the real story to us because we are characters in a story that we don't fully understand. And we live in a universe that we think is intelligible and in which we think we're literate residents, but what Jesus' teaching always does, and it is certainly true in this parable, is Jesus' teaching reveals to us that the universe is not quite as legible, at least to our eyes, as we thought. He's got to give us the accurate spectacles to see things as they really are, to make us truly literate. Uh, residents of the universe. Look at how he does this in verse 2. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, Now, I just want you to think about that. When Jesus is describing the fullness of what it means for God's reign to be manifested and expressed in the universe the picture he uses is of a wedding and a feast, joy and abundance. This is not hard, people, right? This is not hard. Just think about that picture. What Jesus is saying is that the universe is heading toward a wedding and that the ultimate goal of history is a feast where there is going to be laughter, where there is going to be joy, where there is going to be celebration unending. That Jesus is saying, you pull back, you want to know where this is going, you want to know the character of God, you want to know what his will is, you want to know his heart, you want to know what it means for God to really express his rule, then think wedding feast. That's totally amazing to me. The ultimate expression of God's rule is a celebration. Now, of course, I didn't think that way when I was a non-Christian. I didn't think that way until I was 19 years old. So many of us don't think that way today. It's It's a curative reading lesson, isn't it? What Jesus is giving us here. You know what that means, friends? That means that the universe is not a tragedy. The universe is a true comedy. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. You guys all took high school English, or at least some of you are right in the middle of that joy right now. And you get to read Shakespeare, and you learn what a tragedy is and what a comedy is. Now, a tragedy is a story 
in which there's usually a downfall of some major character, right? There's, and there's usually some flaw in the major character, but what, the, what a tragedy is, is it just basically ends sadly and badly, and usually because there's this downfall of a tragic character. And a comedy is not a story that only has uh, kicks and giggles in it. A comedy is a story in which there's great adversity, and the adversity is triumphed over, and the, and the story and the characters in the story reach a happy or a good conclusion. That's a comedy. Where it's not the absence of hard things, but it's the triumph over them into a successful and a happy resolution. And when Jesus pictures the kingdom of heaven as a wedding feast for us, he is not being naive. He is not uh, being naive about the reality of our experience, about the reality of pain. He is not saying that pain doesn't happen. Oh my goodness, of all the people who knows that, he knows it much more clearly and knows its cause. That's why he's going to Calvary. But what he's saying is, don't mistake the subplot for the main plot. Yes, there is tragedy, and yes, there, yes, there are tragedies, and yes, there, there is pain in life. How could there not be in a world that has rebelled against God? But he's saying those tragedies, those little t tragedies, those uh, that, that pain, those are lowercase, those are subplots. They, in the sovereign goodness of God, they are servants of the larger plot and they cannot defeat or overthrow that larger plot. If you look at what's going to happen in Jerusalem to Jesus in this last section of Matthew's Gospel, if you do that with the naked eye on its face, it's going to look like a tragedy. Here's the Son of God, the one, in, the one that the Father said it is, about whom the Father said it is baptism. You're my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Now that Son is going to be crucified? That looks like a tragedy. But see, we know the real story. We know the real story at least the full story, that on the other side of his suffering in those adverse circumstances is a triumph that will never end. And what Jesus is doing, I think, with this parable is he's curing us of our spiritual dyslexia. We look at the universe and we say, tragedy. That's all it is. Just one bad thing after another. Jesus is saying it's not true. And he's doing it in a way that's not naive. As I worked on on this part of the sermon, I, I thought, surprise, surprise, about Lord of the Rings again. And in the last volume, Return of the King, there's this great scene. Sam is in the middle of Mordor, and it's very dark. You know, this is where the bad guy... I'll just try to simplify it for those of you who haven't read Tolkien and are depriving yourself. It's like living, holding your breath when you don't read Tolkien. It's not going to go well. That, that story doesn't end well, right? So don't do that. Why would you jog holding your breath? Read Tolkien. And at one point... And you think I'm kidding... And at one point, Sam is just overcome by how dark everything is around him. And he happens, there's an opening in the sky, and he looks up, it's nighttime, and he sees a star. And this is what Tolkien writes. Many of you know this quote, because you breathe when you live, right? You know this quote. Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while, so he's looking up. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Tolkien agrees with Jesus. The shadow is a small and passing thing. There is light and beauty and a wedding feast forever beyond its reach. Friends, if you're a Christian this morning, that is your bedrock confidence because of the power of the risen Christ.
History belongs to him. That's where he is carrying history. His father's purpose is that at the end, when every aspect of his rule and glory is being expressed, the image he picks is not the image of a tragedy, it's the image of a wedding feast. Now, of course, even within the boundaries of this parable, there's a sad ending for some. Do you notice that? I mean, think about, think about what happens to the man at the end. I mean, we think, about, we think about tragedy in our own lives, but we think, if you pay attention to this parable, Jesus is not saying that there aren't tragedies, but I want you to see that the way he defines what true tragedy is is very different from the way we, we define it. And so each of us is going to have to make a decision. Are we going to let Jesus define for us the meaning of true tragedy, or are we going to impose our definition of what true tragedy is upon Jesus and measure him against our definition? Because you know what Jesus' definition of true tragedy is? It is to have the opportunity to be on the inside of that wedding feast and to decline it, to refuse it, to be disinterested in it, to prefer the outside of the wedding feast to the inside. Now that's tragedy. Jesus is not saying that no one is going to suffer a tragic end. What he's saying is that it's unnecessary. It's unnecessary, friends. There is not a single person in this room or who can hear me ever for whom it is necessary that you remain for all eternity on the outside of the wedding feast. That is not necessary. So don't treat it like it is. Nothing is going to stop this feast. It's going to happen. This is where the universe is ending. And it's not a tragic ending for the universe, but it could be a tragic ending for you if you decline the open-hearted invitation of the Father to join the wedding feast for his son. I pray that you wouldn't do that. That's point one, lesson one. The second lesson is that from this parable that we draw is that the universe isn't about us. It's not about us. It's not a tragedy, and it isn't about us. These, these are very, I know, disorienting points to hit you with right out of the gate, but, but I've just got to say this. I've just got to walk, walk us through this. Hey, the universe isn't about me. I know you think that's good news. The universe isn't about you, and the universe isn't about us. It's about them. That's what this parable shows us. This parable shows us the universe isn't about us, it's about them. Do you see, everything in this parable is driven by the father's passion, the king's passion to honor his son. Every event that occurs in the rest of the parable is downstream from that central story. This love that the father has for his son, that that. The the way in which the father is bent on honoring his son and celebrating the occasion of the son's marriage. That is the passion that drives every event in this parable, that the father loves the son. That the father wants the son to be honored. That the father wants the son to be celebrated. His heart is bent on that, and his heart is undefeated. You know, the the wedding feast goes on. Even even in the face of those who reject the invitation, the father doesn't say, okay, we're going to cancel the wedding feast. No, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen because there is something more important than us in the universe. And it's God the Father's passion for God the Son and God the Son's passion for God the Father and the Holy Spirit's passion to make that reality known. Now, friends... We need to realize that we are living inside somebody else's plan. 
We are living inside somebody else's plan. And we are not the center of that plan. In fact, if you think about the parable, what happens is that the father's love for his son is so great that it spills over, it overflows into invitations and callings to the subjects of the kingdom to come and join the celebration. Now, the universe is just like that, only infinitely more so. Jesus' wedding feast imagery puts us exactly where we belong by removing us from where we don't belong, which is the center. We do not belong in the center. We are the beneficiaries and not the center of this celebration. And the problem is that most of us get this totally backwards. We resist... Uh, we, well, we insist that, that God permit us to be the center of our own stories, don't we? We insist on holding the center in our lives. We insist on it. Now, we're okay for God to be even a major character in our story, some of us. We're even okay at some level for him to be the most virtuous character. But what we're so unwilling to do is to relinquish the center to him. We want him there for a good luck charm. We want him there for a spiritual rabbit's foot. We want him there because we know that unless we keep him happy, I can't have my dreams, and so I might as well please him because he's the gatekeeper, so i got to do what he wants, but what I really want is not him. I want what he can give me. And if that's how I'm relating to him, then I have not relinquished the center. But guess what? Even if I think I hold the center, I do not hold the center. And so this parable is teaching us to read our lives accurately and uh, to see God and his worth accurately and to see accurately the tendency in each of our hearts. You know, it disturbs us when God resists our insistence that he fit into our lives, like he just be a part of our lives. A part of our lives? He's God. I mean, listen, the reason I'm laughing, I'm not laughing at you, I'm laughing at me. And I'm also crying on the inside because of the way that how easy it is for my own heart to diminish God. And so this parable is a gracious tonic. The universe is not about you, Mike Francis. There's a beautiful story here, and to be woven into this story, to have the father's love for his son spill over into the world so that that I get drenched with this and I get called in to be part of this wedding feast, that's just absolutely amazing. But unless I understand that the center of reality is the preeminence of Jesus Christ, then unless and until I understand that, that the main drama in the universe, the main thing going on, the reason that God the Father spreads the canvas of the universe and the canvas of history out is to display the preeminence of Jesus Christ, his son, to set his son before us, to to call us to join in loving his son so that what the Father says at Jesus' baptism becomes not just something we hear but a confession that we make ourselves you are the beloved son and in you I am well pleased unless and until we understand that that's the purpose of the universe and the purpose of our lives the universe will be unintelligible to us and so will our lives that's what this parable reminds us of That's lesson two. The universe isn't about us. The third lesson is this, that we learn from the parable that we're not entitled to the gospel. God's not obligated to us for the gospel, but we're obligated by the gospel. And this is really important, and this is a major theme in this parable. The gospel is a gift from beginning to end, and it imposes obligations. 
It imposes obligations, and God intends that it will. Let's think first about the, the idea that we're not entitled to the gospel as we think about this parable. Now, think, think with me uh, carefully about this parable. Um, okay, so we've, we've seen how uh, there's this wedding feast that the father has planned uh, for, to honor his son, and we've seen that the father loves his son, and the father uh, wants to lavish uh, this, this feast upon his son, and that his love for his son, nothing's going to stop this feast from happening. This is the king, right? It's the king who's going to do this. His will will be done. And nothing's going to stop it from happening. And the father's love is so extravagant for the son that the father is unwilling to have this feast be a private party. And so his love for his son spills out over his heart, out of the palace, as it were, and into his kingdom in the form of invitations through which he says to a number of his subjects, come and be part of my celebration of the son. Come and be part of my honoring of my son. Come and agree with me about the worth of my son. And I have made lavish provision for you. I've killed the fat of calves. I've slaughtered the ox. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. I mean, this is just awesome. This picture of generosity and lavishlessness. But you know, lavishlessness is not a word. I don't know where that came from. It didn't come from Tolkien. But you know what I meant. Extravagance, how's that? Okay, so the king invites a lot of people to the wedding, but you know what's true about every single one of them? They're not entitled to be invited. No one has a right. No one in the kingdom is saying, hey, 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 you didn't invite me, but you invited my neighbor, Charlie. Well, they might be saying that, but they don't have a case. And why don't they have a case? Because it's the king's feast. And the king is the king, and they are not. No one has a right to be in that wedding feast, and no one, therefore, who's not invited can claim that they have been unfairly treated. And everyone who ends up in the wedding feast is there solely by the unmerited favor of the king and his generosity. Now that seems real obvious to us because, hey, he's the king and there is subjects, right? It's his feast for his son. But friends, the distance between, you know, there's a social distance between the king and his subjects and we kind of understand that. But I want you to think, let's, let's step out of the parable and into real life now. What's the distance between us and God? Just the distance of difference. I'm not talking about miles, but what is the difference between us as creatures and God as the creator? It's infinite. It's totally infinite. You know, sometimes I'll joke with you about the, the fire ants in my driveway. And, I, you know, I'll, I'll be doing yard work, you know, once a year. I go out in my yard to do yard work. And I'll see fire ants on the driveway. And, you know, I'll just imagine, you know, and I think, you know, I don't like fire ants. They, they annoy me. Uh, I could just kill that fire ant with, so easily. And I imagine the fire ant arguing with me. It's like, what did you say, Mr. Fire Ant? Right? I mean, really, are you questioning how I'm leading my home? You're asking me why I did such and such? But, but what did you say, Mr. Fire Ant? Is that ridiculous to you? It should be ridiculous to you, right? And it reveals how ridiculous it is and how arrogant and prideful it is for us to stand before God in a way where we function before him as if he were our debtor. The distance between me and the fire ant is a big distance. I mean, I've got, yeah, I, I have a fat head and within that fat head, I've got, a, I've got a brain of some magnitude, okay? I, I know many of you think it's not much magnitude, but that's okay. 
it's still more than could fit into that fire ant's head. Okay, some of you seem skeptical about that, but I'm confident of that. There are things I understand that that ant can't understand. Not just because he doesn't have the information, he doesn't have the capacity. And in real life, friends, the distance between us and God, and we need to come to terms with this, is infinite. God never relates to us as our debtor. Never. One of the verses I have on a post-it on the window above my desk is Job 41.11. Who has first given to me that I should repay him for whatever is under the whole heaven is mine? And what God is announcing to Job is, I don't owe anybody anything. What it means to be God is not to be anyone's debtor. The only way that God is ever obligated to us is when he imposes obligations upon himself. He does obligate himself through his promises and his covenants to us, but those are always self-imposed. Friends, when it comes to the gospel, none of us, has any right to the welcome and acceptance of God through Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? None of us has any right to that. None of us has any right to the good news of the gospel. It is offered by God to all and yet owed by God to none. Every facet of the gospel is a gift of God's grace. We are, so, we are so insulated and inoculated against this wonder. Friends, when Jesus, remember when Jesus talks to his disciples in Matthew 13? I know that was like 10 years ago when we were there. But 10 years ago, a lot less gray hair, when we were there, do you remember what Jesus says to the disciples? Blessed are your ears, for they hear. And blessed are your eyes, for they see. For there were many prophets, and there were many righteous people, who desired to, or who longed, actually, to hear what you have heard and to see what you have seen, but they have not seen them. Friends, to even hear the gospel, to have access to it, is such an astonishing act of grace for God to announce, to bring within a sinner's ear the news that he has made provision for the sinner's reconciliation eternally to God, not on the basis of the sinner's efforts, but on the basis of his own son's accomplishments. Friends, there is no greater gift of good news in the world than that. And to even be aware that that is the nature of reality is an astonishing Niagara Falls of mercy upon us. Just like the king's invitation in the parable. None of us is entitled to the gospel. But when the gospel comes into our lives, we are obligated by it. Even though we're not entitled to the gospel, when God in his mercy, in his providence, breaks into our lives, brings the gospel to us, guess what? That news creates an obligation, imposes an obligation upon us to yield our whole selves to God in Jesus Christ. And we are measured by God according to the access he has given us to the gospel. Now in the parable... Notice how what Jesus shows us. Notice that that the king's invitation is a double-edged sword, right? It, it, It opens up an opportunity and it also exposes the recipients of the invitation to liability. It's a double-edged sword. And so what happens is the people who receive the invitation... Yes, they benefit from the king's slowness to anger. I mean, there's something going on in the text that's harder for us to see. But these, what happens is that these people have been invited multiple times. So if you look at verse 2, or excuse me, verse 3, the king sent his servants to call those who were invited. In other words, they've already been invited, probably already have accepted the invitation, and now that the wedding feast is actually ready, the king dispatches a new round of messengers to the same people whom he's already invited, and now this is the second call to them, and they ignore him. 
And then he sends more servants out. And then they violently treat, most of them violently treat uh, those servants. And then others say, oh, I need to take care of my, my business or my homework or my farm. Who cares about the king's wedding feast? It doesn't even register. It's not important. And the king is very slow to anger. He's very slow to anger. But don't ever confuse his slowness for, to anger for the absence of anger. He's very provoked. And notice verse 7, the king was angry. The king was angry. This invitation matters to him. And the response to the invitation matters to him because the son matters to him. Friends, like the king's invitation in the parable, exposure to the gospel is a double-edged sword. It's simultaneously, I, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but being, being exposed to the gospel, being taught the gospel, having the gospel preached and proclaimed in your hearing, that is simultaneously the safest thing and the most dangerous thing that can ever happen to a human being. It's both. And what, it's the safest thing for a human being because, oh my goodness, God is announcing on the basis of his character, on the basis of his son's accomplishments, that his kingdom is opened to sinners. And that's the safest thing that you could ever have happen to you, to to have that news come upon you and to call you to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, that is the safest thing that could ever happen to you. But if you don't respond to that summons, that very same announcement of good news, if you spurn it, if you disregard it, if you say, I I I, I don't want to deal with Jesus Christ, I'd rather have an affair. I don't want to deal with Jesus Christ. I'd rather deal, I'd rather, I'd rather cheat my business partner and spend my energy that way. I don't want to deal with Jesus Christ. I'm not going to respond to that offer. That feels much less urgent to me than sowing my wild oats or than investing in my career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pardon and forgiveness. That is the most dangerous thing that could possibly happen to you have been exposed to the gospel then because you know it now. Friends, the inside of the church is, and I'll say this again in a minute, but the inside of the church is simultaneously the safest and the most dangerous place on the planet. What we are called to do when we are exposed to the gospel is to embrace Jesus Christ when and as he is offered to us in the gospel, not telling God to wait. He has already waited for you all your life. He has been so patient with you. He has been so tender to you. You have spurned him and he has fed you. He has spoon-fed you every day. He has surrounded you with beauty and goodness every day of your life. No, he's waited long enough. Anything full of short commitment to Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior is the worst sin that you can possibly commit. When God exposes you to the gospel and you spurn the gospel, you walk away from the gospel, you say, no, thank you, mercy of God. That is the greatest act of rebellion of which a human being is capable. Do you believe that? That's what the parable is showing to us. I mean, Jesus is going into Jerusalem and he's narrating the ultimate significance of his death. And what he's saying is you spurn the father's love for the son and that will be your greatest peril. Now, why is this the case? Why is it that the gospel could be simultaneously the safest and the most dangerous thing that we could ever be exposed to? Well, because when you, because when you move from the parable, when you move to real life, I mean, look at what the king does in the parable. He, he destroys the people who reject his son ultimately, right? But you know that what, the, what real life is about, the stakes in real life are, are not less, they're not diminished relative to the parable, they're far greater, Because the king is higher and the son is worth more. And we are less worthy even than the subjects in the kingdom because we're already rebels. 
And the Father has made much greater preparations for us. I mean, think about it. In the, I love this. I just absolutely love this. You know, when, when, when the king sends the second round of servants in verse 4, right, he doesn't just say, hey, you guys got your invitation, which said come to the wedding feast. So and now it's time to come to the wedding feast. The father, it's like he just can't wait to tell them what he's prepared for them. So he says, servants, make sure you tell them what I've done. It's not just that we're going to have a wedding feast, but tell them, specifically describe this. I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. See, he's being very specific and very graphic. Now step out of the parable with me and let's step into the real world of the gospel where God tells us what preparations he's made the preparations that, that have cost him his son. The pre- he's willing, right? The, the father says to us in the gospel, I prepared from before the foundation of the world to offer you the gospel today. I have prepared from before the foundation of the world to send my beloved son into the world in the fullness of time to be born of a virgin, to be born under the law in order to redeem those who are under the law. I have prepared from before the foundation of the world that he would be humbled and obedient to the point of death. I have gone to the length of even planning that he would be sent to his death on a cross as your substitute, that I would send him into the world as the lamb who would take away the sin of the world and that on the cross he would be slaughtered as your substitute. This is what I've planned and I have done it. And my son has accomplished all of my will and I have judged my son in your place for every sinner who will turn from their sin and trust in me. I have judged my son upon the cross. Friends, we stand, all of us today, under God's declaration that he has already made these preparations for us so that everything, everything, everything is ready for you and for me to come to him through Jesus Christ. Much greater preparations God has made already. And the invitation that God gives us in the gospel is so much greater than the king's invitation in this parable. You see, do you feel the obligation, the privilege, the preparation, all of these things in real life? I mean, the parable drastically understates the reality. And the invitation that God gives us in the gospel. Compare it to the parable. In the parable, the people are called, and what's, if they accept the invitation, what's, what's their ultimate upside? Well, they're going to be the king's honored guests at the wedding feast, which is wonderful. Looks like it's going to be quite a barbecue. But in the gospel... God is inviting, he's calling us not to be his honored guests at the wedding feast, but to be the very beloved bride of his son. To enter into an eternal covenant of love with the son. To take us in our rebellion to take us in our defiance, to take us in all of our guilt, in all of our shame. And the son, instead of insisting that we put on, that we make beautiful wedding garments for ourselves, this son is such, the father's inviting us into covenant with this son who is willing to wear the, the garments of our shame, the garments of our guilt, so that he could bear the wrath of God that was due against our sins in our place. And that's what he does on the cross. Friends, it's, it's much greater preparation. God didn't even spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. And God gives us a much greater invitation. Everything is ready. So come to the wedding feast. Look at this man in verse tw- verses 11 through 14. It's just so tragic. I mean, we need to take this so seriously. We need to be sobered by this. Here's a man, I mean, on the surface, right? He's so much better than everyone else in the parable up to this point. 
I mean, he's gotten so far, he's in the wedding hall, right? I mean, isn't that what the king wants? He's in the wedding hall. He didn't, he didn't beat the servants who came and told him about the, about the invitation. He didn't have to be told more than once like the first people the king invited. No, he came. He showed up. He's there in the wedding hall. And he appears to be so much better than all the others. The king didn't have to invite him multiple times. He's all the way inside the wedding hall, and yet when the king comes up to inspect him, he orders his servants to bind him and cast him into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's his offense? I mean, does that, are you not troubled by that? Oh, friends, read the story. What's his offense? Well, his offense I think it's very simple. I, I read a lot of commentators on this, and I think that they are out to lunch, trying to make it way too complicated. His offense is that he's not in the wedding hall for the reason that the king has called him to the wedding hall. And the reason the king has called him into the wedding hall is to join the king's joy in his son. The reason he doesn't have wedding garments on is not because he doesn't have them, but because he doesn't care. He's so close, and yet he's so far away, far enough away from the king's purpose that the king says, there is no more opportunity for you to repent, and so I order you to be cast out. Do you think that that point can ever be crossed inside the church? I hope you answer yes. If you read your Bible, you will know that the answer is yes. Being on the inside of the church is not simply the safe and not automatically a safe haven. It can also be the place of greatest peril. Unless you are here for the reason that the king of all kings called you into this wedding hall so that you would feast on his son. So friends, you need to search your hearts. I can't search them for you. Ask God to search your heart, just like in the prayer of confession from Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my thoughts. Don't be speechless. When the king, right? I mean, you, all of us are under the king's eye at this very moment, and he is moving by the spirit up and down each aisle and row of this church, and he sees our hearts better than we do. And so as he addresses you, even now through his word, by the spirit, when he asks you, Where is your wedding garment? Don't be speechless. Tell him you know you need to be here for the Son and you recognize that you're not here. Repent. Don't be speechless like this man. Your obligation to the gospel is not satisfied just by being inside the wedding hall. Finally, point four, or lesson four. God's sovereignty and our responsibility are not a zero-sum game. You know what a zero-sum game is? A zero-sum game is where you have, you have two things that are in an either-or relationship, and the more you have of one, the less you have of another. The less you have of one, the more you have of another. And when we get to this theme about the relationship, which is, it may be the theme of this parable, the relationship between the, the choice of God and our choices, between the sovereignty of God and our choices, so often people will cast those as a zero-sum game. So the more sovereign I believe God is, that must mean the less responsible I am, and the more responsible I believe I am, the less sovereign God must be. And that is, that is a false and unbiblical dilemma, as Jesus shows us uh, in this parable. Yes, I am talking about the dreaded P and E words, predestination and election. Unless you think that I am just chasing a Calvinistic mirage here, I want you to look at verse 14 with me very carefully. It's the last verse in the parable, but what's, well, it's actually not in the parable. What verse 14 is, is Jesus' commentary at the end of the parable. 
And notice, he begins verse 14 with the word for, which means that what he's about to say, he intends to be explanatory of what has just happened. It's his summary of the parable's lesson. And I want you to notice how what he says is the exact opposite of what we expect he's going to say. And so we know instantly that this is very important for Jesus. See, what we expect him to say, based on what's happened so far in the parable, is that many are called, but few choose. Right? That's what we expect. Many are called, but few choose to come. So few choose to come. They they either ignore the invitation, or they go off to their farm, or they go off to their business, or they decide they want to make war against the king's messengers. So few choose. But you notice that's not what Jesus says, is it? And now you're troubled. Many are called, but few are chosen. There's a wide gap between our expectation and Jesus' explanation here. And we have to come to terms with it. Yes, it's true that many are called and few choose. But Jesus, Jesus is teaching us something different in verse 14. In other words, Jesus is not content to simply end the parable by by having us understand only what we can perceive on the surface of the parable. He's taking us into the depths beneath the story, and he wants us to understand the roots of the story. And when he does, when he takes us down there, notice what he says. He doesn't say the choices of the people don't matter. He's saying there's something that matters even more ultimately and foundationally. And it is this reality of a choice for them. Many are called, but few are chosen, chosen by God. Fewer respond. Now, now you know this from your experience. I know it as a pastor. I am not described. When I, when I say this, I, oh my goodness. If your, if your Calvinism does not make you cry, it ain't the real deal, my friends. If your Calvinism doesn't make you offer the gospel more earnestly and more urgently and more confidently, it ain't the real deal. So when I describe this vision of the sovereignty of God to you, I want you to know that my family... After 33 years of being a Christian, my being a Christian, there is not a single Christian in my family. But that has not stopped me from praying for 33 years. And that has not stopped me from weeping. And it has not stopped me from being burdened as a pastor by the vast difference between the numbers who are called according to God's ordination in the gospel, the vast difference between the numbers, the many who are called in the gospel, and the few who respond. And unless you see God's sovereignty the way Jesus is presenting it to us here, you would fold up and go home. And unless you see this, if you're a Christian, your vision of God's grace is going to be small. Friends, it takes the omnipotent grace of an all-sovereign God to save a single sinner. Sin is so bad and has so destroyed the human capacities. And God is so great that unless God brings his omnipotence to bear inside and for a sinner, there will be no salvation. And Jesus is reminding us of that. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're feeling. You're saying, hey, Francis, if only the chosen choose, then my choices don't matter. Well, let me just point out to you that that 
that Jesus doesn't think the way you think, as we see from the parable, right? And he doesn't feel the way you feel about it. Where you and I might be tempted to see an either-or, zero-sum game between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, Jesus looks at that and says, hey, it's both and. And God teaches this manifestly over and over and over again, not just here, but throughout the rest of the Bible. Both are true. And and friends, God's sovereignty doesn't diminish our responsibility. God's sovereignty is the thing that establishes our responsibility. And we've got to come to terms with this. The question is not whether, think back to my fire ant, right? My little fire ant dialogue right? I mean, here, here we are. We're, the distance between me and my fire ant is nothing. It's like subatomic compared to the distance between us and God. And here we are saying, I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't understand. Make me understand it. And God is saying to us, in effect, right, you have to trust me. Do I teach both in my word? Do I teach human responsibility in my word? Congregation of Emmanuel Presbyterian Church, does God teach the, the responsibility of every man, woman, and child to respond to the gospel? Yes or no? Absolutely he does. And does God teach us in his word that he is absolutely from the alpha to the omega over every aspect of the salvation of a sinner, totally and completely sovereign? Yes or no? Yes! And so what we've got to do is to recognize... See, see, what matters is not whether I understand how these things relate together. What matters is whether God understands how they relate together. Oh, that's so important. It's so important for, for our thinking to be redeemed by being God-centered. You see, if we hold the center, my friends, of the story, we will never think right. But if God holds rightfully the center of the story, that's when everything can begin to become clear, specifically in this area. You ask, why would God call more than he chooses? He's God. He's God. And if he's God, does he have the right to do things that way? Does he? You have to answer that. You can answer it in your heart, but friends, that's the question. He's God. Could it be right that he is right when he does it that way? Could it be possible that there are purposes of God and and a righteousness of God that is beyond our finite capacity to comprehend. Is that possible? If he's God and we are not, of course it is. And so one of the things it means to love God is to follow his thoughts after him as he declares them to us in his word and not to insist that he follow our thoughts after us. Of course there are many mysteries here. Of course there are. These are not theoretical mysteries to me. Every Sunday when I stand up, this is where I live. There are many mysteries here, but there aren't only mysteries. So let me end with four practical applications of the relationship between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of men. Four practical applications. The first is, if you're a non-Christian, You cannot blame God for your unbelief. You notice in the parable how every decision that is made by somebody to walk away or to oppose or to reject the invitation of the king to enter the son's wedding feast, guess what? They all suffer consequences. And just as their responses to the king's invitations are not illusions and not shams, so neither are your responses to the gospel. They are authentic, they are real, and friend, I plead with you, faith, to understand that faith and repentance in Jesus Christ are your duty before God, and he will judge you eternally for what you do with the gospel in response to his offer of it to you. And there will be no injustice.
So you can't blame God for your unbelief if you're a non-Christian. Secondly, if you're a Christian, you can't take credit away from God for your faith. (laughs) The faith and repentance by which you responded and continue to respond to Jesus Christ, those are the sovereign gift of God in your life. What an amazing thing that when you were a rebel, when you were dead, God broke in his mercy into your life. And guess what? He gave you a heart of flesh. And then he put the gifts of repentance and faith. He renewed your will to do what he made it to do. And he gave you your faith. And he gave you your repentance. So there is no ground for pride before God. Just grateful wonder. Grateful wonder. What should happen inside of a Calvinistic church is that you should never be able to shut us up. There should be more joy in here. The whole idea of frozen chosen, that is a complete deconstruction of every single implication of Reformed theology. So let's not be frozen when we're chosen. Let's be unfrozen. And I don't even like that. Let's be heated up. Third practical implication. If your heart is stirred this morning, and I've been praying all week that it will be, then what I want to urge you to do, friend, if your heart is stirred and you're saying, what is it about Jesus Christ? What is this? I mean, this guy has just spent uh, nearly an hour telling me things that I would have thrown rocks at him for if he'd been standing in the parking lot doing it, and yet somehow, against my better judgment, and even against my will up until this point, I find that there has been something about Jesus Christ and the reality of God in this service. It could have been through the hymns, could have been through the prayers, could have been through the scripture. Yes, even the sermon that has just started to stir my heart and I can't stop it. I want to know more. Well, friends, what I want to urge you to do is to recognize those stirrings for what they are. And they are not your idea. They are God's idea in your life. Take it seriously. If your heart is stirred, follow him reverently. Follow him obediently. Follow him gratefully as he works in his mercy, breaking down the castle walls of all of your pretensions and all of your history, breaking in to bring you the good news of Jesus Christ. Follow him gratefully all the way as he leads you to his son today. And if you find, fourthly, that your heart is not stirred, but you're troubled by that, well, you know what not to do from the parable. And what, what you shouldn't do is to repeat the folly, which is suicidal, of the man at the end of the parable, right? So like I said before, every single one of us is under the eye of the king right now. And he knows your heart. He knows the truth about your heart better than you do. And he's addressing you as kindness. He has come up to you repeatedly in this sermon and has addressed you. He has addressed you kindly, just like the king addressed the man. Friend, 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 friend. How did you get in here without a wedding garment? Do you know that you do not have to leave here without one? Don't be speechless when he asks you that question. Don't be disenchanted or detached. Instead, tell him you know you came in without one. Tell him you know that you're responsible, and yet you find in your heart that you're not able to respond to the gospel. Tell him and keep telling him that you can't, but that you want to be able to respond to the gospel. Tell him that. And ask him, as the only one who could ever give to you everything you need to be in his son, and trust him to do it. Because everything is ready. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Let's pray.
Father, we believe that everything is ready. And so now, by the same grace by which you have prepared everything for sinners like us to be reconciled to you through the Lord Jesus, now will you, by that same grace, enable every single one of us to come and to join you in your joy in your Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name.